He has four kids, and the oldest of which is Jake, who he talks about in this book a lot, who has special needs. I know he's going to share a little bit more about what that experience has been like. But I just want to give praise to God for using you as a vessel to share your story, to encourage not just families with, with kids with special needs, but everyone to see uh, when I read this book, I walked away with just a bigger view of grace, and that to me is, is invaluable. So if you guys want to extend a hand towards Greg, we're going to pray for him, or give him a hand too. That's cool. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Yeah, extend a hand out as we pray for, for Greg and this morning. Lord God, thank you so much that you brought our brother all the way from West Virginia. Thank you so much that uh, he's here with Kim and uh, also the Rhymers that, that came from Oregon to help us yesterday, uh, doing a fantastic job. Brad, Sarah, Lord, um, just a whole bunch of volunteers and people in our midst that made that day happen. It was a huge blessing. And we're, we're excited for this morning for all of us to spread, spread out the, the net, if you will, to hear more encouraging words from our brother. We thank you for bringing him to this moment that he might be a vessel for you to speak to our hearts good things about God this morning. So bless him. Use him. And we thank you for him in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Thanks, Amen. brother. Thank you, James. And if you brought a Bible with you, I invite you to go ahead and turn to where we'll be this morning, John chapter 11, the Gospel of John in chapter 11. And it's going to be a very familiar story to most of you if you have read your Bible or uh, are familiar with the scriptures at all, and, and sometimes not even when you're familiar with scriptures. I think even the world knows this um, passage. It's the story of Mary, Martha, and a guy called Lazarus. And so instantly when I name the name Lazarus, most of you know what this story is all about. Uh, I've titled this story, The Resurrection of Love. Uh, We could word it a different way, a love that can raise the dead. Uh, I put love in there because the emphasis is usually on the resurrection of Lazarus in this story, Um, but today we're going to look at the emphasis of love, God's love for us, Jesus' love for us, and a love that can indeed raise the dead. When our son first began having severe problems uh, 22, 23 years ago, I did what any good dad would do uh, who had a son who was having problems. I, I tried to fix them. And I tried to fix them by praying to the God that I knew could fix them. And I prayed fervently for years that God would give my son a voice so he could speak. I prayed fervently for years that God would heal my son of the anomaly, a myriad of of ailments that he had with autism and cerebral palsy and pervasive developmental disorder non-otherwise specified, as they call it on the spectrum. I prayed that God would heal him of his physical uh, disabilities with his legs and his eyes. But you know, God never answered those prayers, at least not in the way that I thought they should be answered at the time that I thought they should be answered. And I remember about 10 years ago when things started to get really bad with my son. He, he started to reach his teenage years, and, 
and he reached those years that all young teenage boys get to where, where, where the hormones wash the brain and turn them into a totally different person. And if you've ever been around teenage boys, you know what I'm talking about. But imagine that uh, uh, times 10, and you can imagine what it was like living with our son. He changed dramatically. He grew bigger, stronger, more active. He grew very aggressive during those years. He could not sleep. And so someone had to stay up with him all night long. He was still wearing diapers into his late teenage years. And he did not want to be chained. He would fight you tooth and nail just to get him clean, just to take a bath every single night was a physical and emotional battle that would completely drain me and my wife. And can I say that God seemed very silent during that time in my life. He seemed very distant. During the time that I needed Him the most, I, I, I couldn't get an answer from Him. I couldn't hear Him. And I grew very weary in the process. I became weary of trying to love someone without that love being reciprocated back to me like so many parents of kids with special needs have to deal with. I became weary of physically fighting my son just to get him clean every single day. I became weary of staying up all night long and locking my doors and putting alarms on the doors and locking the refrigerator and the cabinet and, and going without sleep, not knowing what was going on when my son was up roaming the house. I became weary of how my son's round-the-clock care was affecting my marriage and my family and my own mental state of being. And this weariness caused me to stop praying. To stop asking God to heal my son. To stop waiting for God to come and rescue us from the situation we were in. And I grew very bitter towards the Lord. What bothered me most was that I was a Bible student. I knew the Bible. I knew about the sovereignty of God. I knew about His omnipotence, His omniscience, His omnipresence, His providence. I knew these things about God. I knew that God was able to help me then I question, why didn't He come? Why didn't He help us? Why didn't He answer these prayers like we needed them to be answered? And then things got worse. The bottom dropped out of my life about 10 years ago. And I walked away from my faith. I walked away from my church. I tried my best to walk away from my wife and my family. I, I tried my very best to walk away from God. As a matter of fact, I ran as hard as I could. And I felt angry. And I felt abandoned. I felt betrayed. But most of all, can I be honest and transparent with you? Most of all, I felt very unloved. By a God who promises to love me forever. And during that time, I dug a pit so deep that I didn't think anybody could find me. I didn't want anybody to find me. 
I didn't think anybody wanted to find me. But God found me. And what I discovered during that time in that pit was that he had never actually left me. He was there through the whole thing, working and working to take me to a mountaintop where I could see with unobstructed eyes the greatness of His grace and the greatness of His glory and the greatness of His presence in the life of me and my family and my son that I would have never experienced otherwise had it not been for the pain, had it not been for the silence, had it not been for the delay of God in my life. Shortly after this, um, I began to write. I was never a writer before. Um, I was in my early 40s when I began to write, and I began to blog simply out of frustration, mostly. I wanted people to know what we were going through as a family, and so I started to write. And just I started to send those blog posts out to wherever they might go, just to be transparent enough to open my life up to other people. And you know what happened? I started getting answers back from Texas and California and and North Carolina and Florida and Colombia and the Ukraine and China and South Korea. And I discovered that I wasn't the only one facing these problems of delay with Jesus. I wasn't the only one facing these problems of disability with my son. There were There's a community all over this world that have that in common and they need to hear about my struggles and my hope and I need to hear about their struggles and their hope. And it formed a great community within my life. Suddenly I saw myself as the disabled one and God as the loving Father who would stay up all night when I could not sleep. Who would hold me so I would not run away. Who would clean me even when I refused to be clean. He would clean me. And who would love me even when I did not reciprocate that very love. These stories of grace led to a little book that uh, James showed you. It's called Wrestling with an Angel. Just a real tiny 100-page book. And that little book has, has now been written in two different languages, English and Russian, working on a Spanish edition and a Hindi uh, edition to go to India. Uh, that little book has, has gotten into the hands of thousands and thousands of families across the United States and across the globe as families have reached out to find answers, answers about Jesus and grace as well as about disability. Shortly after writing the book, we partnered with an organization called the Elijah Foundation. That's who we worked with this weekend with some of your families. Um, to minister to families with disabilities, to show them the glory of God in the good design of disability. And for the past six years, I've traveled the country like this, meeting with families and telling them my son's story and answering questions and teaching them the scriptures and showing them the glory of God in the valley of disability. And I tell you all of that to tell you this. Sometimes God doesn't come when we call. Sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers the way we think they should be answered when we think they should be answered. The way 
we think they should be answered. Sometimes He doesn't heal us when we're sick. Sometimes He doesn't take away the pain. And sometimes He waits and He waits and He waits and He waits for the perfect time to implement the perfect plan so we will perfectly see the perfect glory of His perfect Son, Jesus. And that waiting is the hardest part of being a follower of Christ. But even if His plan should mean sickness, even if His plan should mean suffering, even if His plan should mean depression or delay, or listen to this, even if His plan should mean certain death, guess what? We serve a Savior who can raise the dead. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So as we look about this familiar story of Lazarus and Mary and Martha in John 11, I want us to see it with brand new eyes. I want us to see it with a brand new mind and a brand new heart. Uh, I want us to see that the story is not just the account of a miraculous resurrection, it's also the story and the account of astonishing love. Love like you will never experience it before and may never experience again unless you come face to face with Jesus. It doesn't look like love at first. I have to warn you, okay? Because we're conditioned to think what? That love points to us. That love is when we get what we need when we need it, right? And if you give me what I need when I need it, you love me. If you don't, then that means you don't love me. But a love that only points to ourself is a finite love. It's an unsatisfying love. It's a love that will not last. Jesus aimed to give us a love that will last forever. And so sometimes He withholds the good to give us the very, very best. One of my favorite theologians is Pastor John Piper, and he says it this way, don't measure the love of God for you by how much health, wealth, and comfort He brings to your life. If that were the measure of God's love, then he hated the Apostle Paul, right? Measure God's love for you by how much of himself he shows you, how much of himself he gives you to know and enjoy. God's love for us always ultimately points us back to God because he is the highest gift that he can possibly give himself. So with that in mind, I want to give you just a few things that you can stick in your pocket today, leave here with, and be reminded of God's amazing love, a love that can raise the dead. I'm going to give you three or four points. You can write these down. You can remember them. They're all really short, and so we'll work through these as we work through the story. It's a narrative story, a really good story, really easy story to go through. But let's look at Jesus' love and how Jesus' love points us to God this morning. Because remember, God is the greatest gift He can give. Himself is the greatest gift that He can give to us. So, point number one. Point number one in our story. Jesus' love points us to God's glory. Jesus' love always points us to God's glory. Here's the story. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. 
So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, John's introduction to one of the main characters of the story is a bit unusual because it describes her in an event that has yet to happen. It's very interesting that we see this. He describes Mary to the reader in an event that has yet to happen. It's almost as if the reader is supposed to know the famous story of Mary and her love for Jesus. It's that Mary. And it's that Mary we see in John chapter 12, the next chapter, verses 1 through 3. Listen, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This was an extravagant display of love that sets the stage for us to know what family, what Mary, what Martha, what Lazarus that John is talking about here. Mary was famous for her love for Jesus. It's that Mary. And perhaps one of the first things that we can take away from that personally is the more you love, the more it hurts. You're going to see that in the following passage. So, when you're best friends with Jesus, He's the great physician, right? He's the Savior of the world. He's the God of the universe. And your best friend is sick, who happens to be your brother, Jesus' best friend. Obviously, you think, well, I'll just have Jesus come and heal him because they're best friends, right? Hey, Jesus, can you take a break from all the people that you're healing that you don't even know, and can you come and heal your best friend Lazarus? Remember him? Seems like an easy request. Family always takes priority, and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are like family to Jesus. So how does Jesus respond? He doesn't. At least not to Mary and Martha and Lazarus directly. I mean, if you're Mary and Martha, you're like, Mary, go, go check the mail. I mean, did, did we miss the letter? Did, did Jesus not get our letter? Is, is he here yet? Do you see him? Is he coming down the road? Where is he? We... We expected him to be here by now. And then day one goes by. Day two goes by. And things start to happen. Bad things start to happen. And your friend still doesn't show up. Did he hear at all? But we know Jesus did hear because the very next verse, verse 4, says, but when Jesus heard it, he said, and he says not to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but he says to those around him, his disciples, he says, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So if you're there with Jesus and you hear him say these words, obviously you're thinking, oh great, Lazarus isn't going to die. He's just going to be a little sick for the glory of God. But you know the story. Lazarus does die. A very real death. So what is Jesus saying here? I think what Jesus is saying here in verse 4 is the same thing he said in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Listen to this passage. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man that sinned, 
nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So when Jesus said that Lazarus' sickness will not lead to death, basically what he's saying is that it's going to look like death to you, but I have the power over that. It's not going to be like death to me. Same thing with the man born blind. This looks like sin to you, but it's really so that the glory of God might be displayed in this man's life and in your life too. And that's exactly what the resurrection of Lazarus is going to show. Jesus is saying sickness is a slave to the sovereignty of God. Remember that. And sometimes we get sick, so God gets the glory. And sometimes our children are born with a disability, I found out. So God gets the glory. And sometimes we die. So God gets the glory. And now the question that that leaves us with, and I can see it on some of your faces, is, okay, how is it love if God lets us get sick, if God lets my child be born with a disability, if God lets me die, how is that love? Remember, we're conditioned to believe that love is when you get what you need when you need it. And obviously, Mary and Martha and Lazarus aren't getting that, they think. Well, I would argue through Scripture that it's love because the most loving thing God can do is separate us from our comfort. The most loving thing God can do is put us in a position of total desperation so that we will have to depend on Him absolutely. That's the most loving thing He can do. It's not easy, it's not comfortable, it hurts. But any of you who've been in any amount of pain or any amount of suffering know that during those times are when you draw close to the Lord. During times of prosperity and wealth and health are times when you draw out. If you've ever suffered, you know what I mean when I say that suffering draws us close to the Lord. In 2 Corinthians, Paul, the Apostle Paul, begins his letter to the church by describing the horrible events that he experienced while traveling through Asia Minor. Listen to these words, and listen to the emotion of these words. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Those are suicidal words there. Indeed, he says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This this burden beyond our strength, this affliction, this sentence of death was intentional in the plan of God to bring them close to Jesus. And so sometimes God takes away everything we have so we realize that He is enough. That He is indeed more than enough. So Jesus' love always points us to God's glory because God's glory is the ultimate form of His deepest love for us. Number two, number two, point number two, 
Jesus' love points us to God's providence. Providence, that's a big theological word. I know we're going to explain what it means in just a minute. Jesus' love points us to God's providence. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place he was. Yeah, you laugh because that doesn't make sense, does it? Let me paraphrase that. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus so much that instead of coming at Martha's request and healing her brother, he let Lazarus die and let the family linger four days in mourning and anguish without an explanation. Now that's love. Yeah. Most of us would admit that doesn't sound like love. That doesn't look like love. And the reason it doesn't sound like love, again, is because we are conditioned by the world to believe that love is when we get what we want, when we want. And if you're late with that, you don't love me. If you're negligent with that, you don't love me. Martha is thinking, and I know that by the, 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 the writing of the story, and she, she almost says it later, Jesus, if you loved us, you would have come. But you didn't come. So, do you not love us? How many of us have prayed a prayer similar to that in our darkest moments? How many of us have indicted God because He didn't give us what we wanted when we thought we needed it? Me. But when we presume the plan of God, we often forget about the providence of God. What does that word providence mean? Well, let me give you a textbook definition from an old dead guy. Um, he's, he's, he's a former pastor from a Dallas Theological Seminary, a great man of God. He's with Jesus now. His name is James Vernon McGee. And some of you might know that name. Uh, he's an older guy, so some of you might not. But he was a great theologian and Bible teacher at Dallas Theological Seminary. And he says it like this. He says, providence is the means by which God directs all things, both animate and inanimate, seen and unseen, good and evil, towards a worthy purpose, his worthy purpose, which means his will must finally prevail. Providence is the way that God is directing the universe. He's moving it into tomorrow. He's moving it into the future by his providence. Providence literally means to provide. God will provide. Providence means that the hand of God is in the glove of human events. That's how you can remember that. And that hand of providence is working in the sickness and the delay and the death of Lazarus. Not to give him and Mary and Martha what they want when they want, but listen, to give them more than they could ever ask for or imagine on their own. That's love, by the way. Verse 7, then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you there, and you're going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. I see it in your faces now. You're thinking, what in the world did Jesus just say? What? I don't understand. What did he mean by all that and why did he say all that? Well, 
I'll, I'll give you my, my two cents here. I think what Jesus is saying to his disciples is this. There is a time to do the work of God, and there is a time to die. It is not yet my time to die, so let in, let's go and do the works of God, right? That, that's basically what Jesus is saying here. And that is providence. That's providence. Everyone has a day and a date. It won't come too soon. It won't come too late. That's providence. And if that one theological concept could govern our missions, more of us would probably go on missions. If that one theological concept could govern our ministries, we would be so daring with our ministries to know that God has a time for us to die and we are immortal either. We are immortal anyway. We're going to live forever. And even if we should die, God knows when we're going to die. So let's go and do the work of God while there's time to do the work of God. We would be bold for Jesus if that concept could govern our ministry and our missions. Well, that's what Jesus is saying here. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go to awaken him. That's what it was like to Jesus, sleep. But I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant he was taking a rest and sleep. And then, Lazarus told them, or then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And so for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, that you may believe, but let us go to him. Jesus said, I'm glad I didn't go. I'm glad I wasn't there. I'm glad he died. So now that you can go and see how I can raise the dead. So that when you come to my empty tomb a few weeks from now and you see I'm not there, you realize it's the power of God. That's what this passage is all about. God's love displayed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 16, so Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And if you know Thomas, you know that's funny, okay? Because after Jesus' resurrection, Thomas goes, I don't believe it. I don't buy it. Show me his hands. Show me, show me Jesus and I'll believe it. And Jesus is so merciful. He's so compassionate. He walks through the door and he goes, Thomas, hey, it's me. Look at my hands. Look at my side. Touch it. It's me. To which Thomas replies, my Lord and my God. Jesus is so compassionate. And that leads us to point number three. Jesus' love points us to God's glory. It points us to God's providence. Number three, Jesus' love points us to God's compassion. We miss this one so often. Our God is a compassionate God. Remember, God's love is displayed in Jesus. It walks like, talks like, looks like, acts like Jesus. When we see the character of Jesus, we see God, right? A.W. Tozer said it like this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So let me ask you, what comes into your mind when you think about God? When I think about God, I think about Jesus. That's the character, that's the nature that's God in the flesh. And I remind you all of that because sometimes we are tempted to view God as the Old Testament hardliner of a law who 
firing down brimstone and fire all over us for, for breaking the law and, and sending judgment and, and standing on a mountain filled with smoke and things like that. And that is true. That is God. But let us never forget that all of that judgment, all of that fire, that brimstone, that punishment was cast on the back of his son for us. That's love. That's compassion. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's justice for us. He's the fulfillment of God's justice for our disobedience. He's the incarnation of God. He's God in the flesh. And when we see Jesus, we don't see another God. We see the God of the Bible. Perhaps no other, test, no other passage in the New Testament, at least, um, displays this as heartfelt to me as the one we're about to read right now. Listen to this, verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, came to their house, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, what I want us to see in this account is, is, is John's going to give us two accounts here. He's going to give us Martha's account, and he's going to give us Mary's account. What I want us to do, I want us to place ourselves in Martha's sandals and in Mary's sandals. See, these are, I think these are two types of believers here, okay? I want you to find yourself in one of these two accounts, either Martha or Mary. One of these two responses. The first response is Martha's response. Martha comes running out to Jesus to meet Jesus. And she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But Martha's response is followed by a profound statement of faith. Listen to these words. Verse 22. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Let me tell you something. That is deep. That is huge for Martha to say, those words. That's Martha's response to her brother's death. Even though she didn't understand Jesus' delay, she trusted Jesus' heart. She believed Jesus' words. She leaned on Jesus' promises. As Charles Spurgeon once said, when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. Martha could not trace Jesus' hand, but oh, how she trusted Jesus' heart. And maybe you're a Martha type person. Maybe that would be your response to delay and death and depression and suffering and disability. The other response is Mary's response. This is probably where I fall in line. Remember, Mary was famous for loving Jesus, right? That was what she was known for. And perhaps we can take away from her reaction is, again, the more we love, the more it hurts, right? 
Maybe you're not like Martha. Maybe you're more like Mary. Listen to John's description, verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Mary's like, "Uh, I'm just not ready for that. I have some deep internal issues with Jesus right now. He, He should have come and he should have helped us. He should have healed my brother. He healed other people, people he didn't even know. Their names, he healed them. And Lazarus and me and and Martha, we were best friends with Jesus and he didn't come. He didn't show up and I have some problems with that right now. And I'm just going to sit right here. Jesus wants to see me, he can come to me. Verse 28, so Martha went and called her sister Mary saying in private, She goes up to her and whispers this in her ear, I think. She says, the teacher is here, and he's calling for you. Jesus is here, Martha. He knows how much you're hurting. He knows your pain. He knows your questions. He knows your skepticism. He knows your doubt. He knows what's going on in your heart and your mind and your life. Come to him. Get up. Run to him. He's waiting for you. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Martha needs that rest right now. Jesus is offering it to her. Verse 29, And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. She rose quickly and went to him. Verse 30, Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were there with her, Mary, in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. So we know that Mary's still visibly upset after four days. She's still weeping. She's still crying. She's still grieving. Verse 32, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet, saying to Him, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. I want you to note that Martha goes out to meet Jesus. Mary collapses at his feet. They both say the exact same opening line. But Mary does not follow hers up with any kind of statement of faith whatsoever. Jesus, if you had been here, this would not have happened. And you didn't show up. I I feel Mary's response. I feel it. And so do some of you. Some of you have really struggled with God's delay in your life. Some of you have really struggled with God's lack of answering your prayers the way you thought they should have been answered when they should have been answered. Some of you have some really deep issues and questions and concerns with Jesus right now. And I want to encourage you that He's waiting for you. He wants to talk to you about those things. He has some answers for you, if you will. He is a very compassionate and patient Savior. And His compassion is perfectly displayed 
in this next passage. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, the shortest passage, the shortest verse in the Bible, and maybe one of the most powerful ones, Jesus wept. The God of the universe, the Savior of the world, cried tears of sorrow over his friend. That's compassion. Verse 36, so the Jews said, see See, oh, see how he loved him. Verse 37, of course, but some of them said, could he not who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? That's what Mary's thinking. That's what I'm thinking. That's what some of you are thinking. They're still thinking healing. Why didn't he come and heal Lazarus? Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You're missing it. There is something much greater than healing about to take place. You're about to see it. Stick with us. Jesus is never late. He's always right on time, and his glory and his providence all come together to display his great compassion in our lives for his friends and their pain, the emotions of a loving God through the life of his living son. So we see Jesus' love points us to God's glory. It points us to God's providence. We know what that is. It points us to God's compassion. One more I want us to end with, and we're done. Number four, Jesus' love points us to God's sovereignty. His sovereignty. The sovereignty of God is the biblical teaching that all things are under God's rule. All things are under God's authority. All things are under God's control, and nothing that happens happens without His direction or His permission. Understand that. I want you to see this as we conclude the message this morning. Verse 38, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to Him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for He has been dead for." days. I like the King James version on this. It says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. (laughs) If you have a King James Bible, you can look it up. Stinketh. Yeah. The Jews did not embalm, so that's a good word, right? They simply took the body and they put spices on it and wrapped it in linen for it to be bearable enough for the funeral and the, the, the burial, okay? But let me tell you something. After four days, the natural process of the body took control. And so by the time Jesus got to Lazarus, he was not just dead. He was dead dead. You know what I'm talking about? He was a stinking, rotting, bloating corpse dead. And like I told the morning crew, um, my 22 years of law enforcement, I've been to some crime scenes that somebody's been one day dead, two day dead, Four days dead, 40 days dead, and it's not a, the the progression, the progression begins about 48 hours, okay? After 24 to 48 hours, it starts getting really ugly, okay? Lazarus is in the tomb four days, and this is very intentional, okay? 
Jesus doesn't want you to be mistaken that Lazarus was asleep or that he was just knocked out or something. He was dead, okay? There's a, there's a, there's a stinky odor coming from a tomb. He's dead, dead. And, and I emphasize that not to be gross, not to be overly dramatic. I emphasize that because we've all got things in our lives that we may be tempted to think that they're too far gone for God to help us with. Let me tell you something, and I know this by experience. Your marriage is not too far gone for God to save it. Your heart is not too far gone for God to save it. You say, i got a dead heart. Guess what? God can raise the dead. Your faith is not too far gone for God to resurrect it. Your child is not too far gone for God to bring them back. God is the great physician. Don't ever say it's too late. It's never too late for Jesus. He's sovereign. He can bring dead things back to life. Look at verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! One preacher said Jesus had to call Lazarus specifically by his name or every tomb in Bethany would have been empty. I like that. That's the authority of God over death. Verse 44, And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Set him free. Death no longer has hold of him. Jesus is in perfect control. His sovereignty reigns over the enemy of death. I want you to know as we close this story and and leave here this morning that God loves you more than you could ever imagine, more than you could ever fathom on your own. And that is proven over and over again in Scripture. He loves you so much that He sent Jesus to this earth to live a perfect life. Jesus lived a perfect life. One that you could never live if you had a thousand lifetimes to live. You could not live it. He lived it for you. He loved you so much that Jesus went to the cross and died a sacrificial death for your sins. A death that you should have died. He died for you. And on that cross, He took all of your sin and He gave you all of His righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might have the righteousness of God in Him. The Bible says. He loved you so much that He died on that cross. He was buried in a grave. And three days later, He rose from the dead. The significance to defeat death, hell, sin, and Satan and He loved you so much that He ascended into heaven where He now, the Bible said, sits at the right hand of the Father forever making intercession for you. He's praying for you right now as you sit here. As you go through your dark times, as you experience the delay in your lives, He's praying for you. He's interceding for you. And listen to this, Jesus loves you so much that one of these days He's going to come back And He's going to reach down. He's going to grab you by the hand and He's going to raise you up 
resurrected and alive. All by grace. You can't deserve it or earn it. All through faith. The Bible says He even gives you that. All for His glory and your good. He loves you so much that in the midst of what seems like delay, in the midst of what sounds like silence, in the midst of what feels like indifference, He will put on display all of His glory. He will put on display all of His providence. He will put on display all of His compassion and all of His sovereignty for His highest glory and for your greatest good. That, my friends, is love. That's God's love. Won't you trust it? Won't you place your hope in it today? Let's pray. Father, thank You for, again, for Your Word um, that is living, that is powerful, that is sharper than any two-edged sword that pierces our hearts like nothing else could. May Your Word pierce the hearts of Your people today. It is a rock on which we can stand in a world of sinking quicksand that tells us there is no hope, that You are dead, that Jesus is gone, that there is no thing as ultimate truth, that we cannot find love outside of ourselves. Father, Your Word is a rock that we can stand on and proclaim the Gospel of truth that says God loves us so much that, and we can fill in that blank with an endless supply of gifts for the people we come into contact with. May that be the case as we leave here today that we not just fill up with Your Word, but we fill up to go out and empty out into Your world. Lord, fill this valley with Your love. and We'll give You the honor and the praise and the glory forever. In Jesus' name, and amen.